You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. While we're turning to the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, uh, we began our, our evening service in the Upper Room Discourse uh, on a Sunday morning in August, and we are finishing that evening series on a Sunday morning in uh, December, and uh, having been in the church for a few months, that all seems to be completely regular style of doing things for St. Peter's, uh, so I'm very glad to fit in with the uh, irregularities of regular life here. And uh, if, you, if you don't have the Bible on your cell phone, uh, but are uh, using an ordinary uh, church Bible, I believe the passage is on page 1085 of the church Bible. If you're sitting in a, a row of chairs where there is no Bible, uh, this would be a good time to uh, go to the back and see if you can find a Bible uh, so that we can read through this together. Last uh, Sunday evening, we were looking at the first five verses of this chapter. I said that uh, in the history of the church, this whole chapter has often been referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. It comes, as we've seen at the end of five chapters, uh, this little section in the gospel began with an acted parable of the gospel. Jesus knowing that the Father had given everything into his hands, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, put on the servant's towel, and washed the dirty feet of his disciples, and then he took the place of honor again at the table. And just as the whole gospel begins with the story of Jesus being with God and becoming flesh, in order that we might see his glory. So, the second half of the gospel begins with Jesus conscious that he has come from God, washing dirty feet as a parable, a dramatic picture of what he's going to do on the cross, and then in that dramatic parable, going again to the place of honor. And in between that introduction and now the conclusion he's been teaching his disciples about the joy of the Lord, about the struggles of the Christian life, and about the glory that awaits him and them. And now he's come to pray about that and to pray with them in this, uh, as I said, high priestly prayer. Uh, the high priest in Israel was the one man who once a year would go into the holiest room in the temple with a special sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of the people. It was the high day, the holiest day of the Hebrew calendar. And he went through an entire day of preparation for this great event. And part of that preparation was that he engaged privately in prayer, and he prayed in concentric circles. He prayed for himself that he might be able to carry out his responsibility and that God would accept the sacrifice. 
And then he prayed for his family circle, that they would be set apart for the Lord. And then he prayed for the whole congregation of Israel. And we noticed that this passage follows through these three concentric circles. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself and for his glory. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his immediate family, his family of disciples who are with him in the room, the 11 apostles who are left. And then he moves beyond that in verse 20 through verse 26 to pray for the whole church, including, obviously, the church today. And it's these two sections, beginning in verse 6, that we're going to look at. Let me read a few verses, and then we'll turn our attention to Jesus' teaching. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours." All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one." While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. He's referring to Judas, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Interestingly, in this whole section, Jesus explains to his disciples, first of all, why he is teaching them the things he's teaching them in the upper room, and now second, here in this last verse we read, why it is that he is allowing them to overhear his prayer. When the high priest went into the presence of God, no one heard his prayer for himself, for his family, or for the whole community. But Jesus, as the high priest of his people, is doing something different. He is deliberately allowing his disciples to overhear his prayer. And the reason for the teaching and for the praying apparently is the same and ought to be, at the end of this sermon, the impact of Jesus' words on us. He is teaching them, he says, I've said these things to you, chapter 15, verse 11, so that 
my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. It's paradoxical, really. Uh, He has been profoundly distressed because he knows he's going to be crucified. The disciples are profoundly distressed, but he's teaching them that as his word dwells in them, his joy will fill up within them, and that even through sufferings and trials, they will find that they are almost like grapes that are being crushed to produce sweet wine. Joy will come through their suffering. And now he's praying. These are the most intimate prayers of Jesus. This actually is the Lord's prayer, isn't it? This is the longest and most intimate recorded prayer of the Lord Jesus, and he is allowing his disciples to listen so that they can pass on his words to us in order, he says, that we may have joy. Very striking thing. Uh, It's a gospel that is so contrary to the way people think about the gospel. Jesus is for our joy, and it's for our joy that He allows us to listen to Him praying for His disciples and then for us. And you'll see that the rest of this passage falls very naturally into these two circles. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying for the disciples then, the men who are in the room. Verses 20 through 26, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's praying now for disciples now. We are those, if we are true Christians, we are those who have believed in Jesus through their message. It may have come to us in the church or in our family or from a fellow student or just because somehow or another we heard the story of the gospel, but ultimately that gospel story has come to us because of the faithfulness of these 11 men who were in the room with Jesus. So the second part of the prayer is Jesus reaching out His arms, as it were, into all future history and embracing His people in every place and at every time. And we have a little consciousness of that today. As Bram goes back to the Netherlands, as we've students from Northern Ireland, as we've people from the United States of America, as we've… we've uh, people who will vote on independence, who actually come from England. We have this privilege as living churches in cities tend to do of having this little representation among ourselves that produces this consciousness. We are here together because the Lord Jesus has prayed for us. So he's praying for his disciples, especially those who are around him, and he's extending that prayer to everyone who will come to believe in him. And you would notice that his prayer for his disciples, the first part of this prayer, is dominated by three features. 
it's dominated, first of all, interestingly, by their description, the way in which Jesus describes them. Verse 6, for example, they are those to whom Jesus has revealed the Father. This is what He's been doing these three years with them. He's been saying to them, I have come from the Father, and I want you to know the Father. And as you read through the New Testament in contrast with the Old Testament in the Gospels, that's the message that comes through again and again and again and again. Now, because the Son of the Father has come, it's possible through Him to know God as your own dear, loving, caring, heavenly Father. And he says in verse 7 that they're those who have received His Word. Most people have not received His Word. And so, there's a kind of tenderness in the way Jesus speaks here. Father, there were people who began to follow me, to listen to me, who have turned back from me, but I'm praying for these ones because these are the ones who have stayed with me. They've received my Word. They've come to believe in me. And then he says, amazingly in verse 10, and Father, I'm praying for them because through them I have received glory. That's an amazing thing to say about this ragamuffin bunch, isn't it? But actually, they're they're among the few through whom He's received glory. What does He mean that He's received glory through them? It's this, that in the way they have followed Him, trusted Him, loved Him, believed in Him, become His disciples, they have quietly said about Jesus, He is glorious. And then he says about them, they're the ones that I have protected. In verse 12, while I've been with them in the world, he says, there have been times when I've put my body between people and them in order to protect them. And what's so fascinating about his prayer here actually is that most of what we call the prayer, most of what we call the petition, the intercession, is actually an elongated description. You would think it would be the other way around, that he would spend less time describing them and more time interceding for them, but he actually spends more time describing them than he does interceding for them. Once he's described them, the prayer is quite simple. He says, Father, keep them. Protect them. So, why the emphasis on the description? Maybe the best way into that is this. I want you to imagine a situation that… Of course, it's unimaginable for you, but perhaps some of you have experienced this. You're a young man, and you've fallen in love with a beautiful young girl. And you don't think uh, much of yourself, uh, and you don't think that uh, while you are beginning to be infatuated by her, you don't think that uh, she pays much attention to you. So, 
You're going to the Lord to speak to the Lord about her. And what do you do? You say, Lord, she's this, and Lord, she's that, and Lord, she's this, and Lord, she's that, and Lord, she's this, and Lord, she's that, and oh, Lord, she's perfect. Lord, help her to notice me. It's actually an expression of affection and love that the description lingers longer than the petition. And so, the first thing to notice here is this loving description that the Lord Jesus gives. And then, of course, His prayer is for their preservation. In verses 11 and 12, He says, Father, I kept them while I was with them. I kept them in the name. Now, the name, uh, any of you who have any Jewish friends, certainly Orthodox Jewish friends, will know that that's the way Orthodox Jews pronounce the divine name. The divine name is too holy for them to pronounce, so they, they refer to Him as the name. But what is this name? Well, of course, it's the name that the Lord revealed to Moses at the burning bush, the name Yahweh, the name that means I am, or I am who I am, and I will cause to be what I will cause to be. And Jesus is praying now for their protection because He has protected them in that name. Actually, there's an amazing illustration of this. If you just turn over the page or slide along in your, uh, in your uh, uh, Bible there, in, in, uh, in a short while when Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the soldiers come. They are asked, who are you looking for? They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus stands out and he says, in, in, our, in most of our versions, it's translated, I am he. But actually what he said was, I am. I am. And you notice the reaction. When he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's an immediate illustration a dramatic illustration of what Jesus is saying here. He hadn't done it so dramatically before, but all the way through His ministry with them, He had protected them. He is always protecting His disciples. He, he protects us in ways that we never recognize. He gives His angels charge over us to guard us in our ways to protect us until His purposes for us have come to an end, and then He takes us home to glory. And this is what He's, he's praying, but now He says, I'm not going to be with them, Father. And since You gave them to me, I'm giving them back to You so that You will protect them for my sake. So, there is a description and there's a prayer for preservation. And you'll notice that he prays that they'll be preserved against the three great enemies of their souls. He, he prays for them that they will be kept from the influences of the world. And he prays that they'll be kept together so that 
they will be preserved from the influences of the flesh that tend to divide us from one another. And he prays that they will be protected from the evil one, from the devil, he says. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Now, why this description and prayer for their protection? It is because he longs to pray for their consecration. And you notice this when we get to the end of the section. He says, for their sakes, I sanctify or consecrate myself that they too may be truly consecrated. This is what the high priest did. He set himself apart in order that through his setting himself apart, when he went into the holiest place of all, you remember those robes, those special robes that he wore that had on the breastplate the the stones that represented the twelve tribes of Israel and the stones on his shoulder, the epaulets on his shoulder, that each represented six of the tribes of Israel. So, that everything he did, he did, as it were, carrying God's people on his shoulders, carrying God's people on his heart, that what was true of him, that his sacrifice would be accepted, would mean that his sacrifice would also be accepted for them. And Jesus is praying. Yes, he's praying spending most of his time on this description of those he loves and praying for their protection. But his great focus is their and our consecration and praying that they may be sanctified, that they may be holy, that they may be set apart, which is what the word really means, or as we might say, that they might be reserved. I don't know whether uh, the stores still have January sales, but, you know, when people used to crowd in the January sales because they'd seen something in the preview that they wanted to buy, and they, they dive in there, and they knock Mrs. Smith out of the way, and then they get to the new couch they were going to buy, and there's a sticker on it, and it says, reserved for Mrs. Smith, and you can't buy it. It's sacrosanct. And that's what Jesus is praying. He's praying that as He puts His hand upon us and as He brings us to His heavenly Father, there will be a sign on us that says, reserved for the Lord Jesus. Reserved for the Lord Jesus. And of course, In their case, that prayer came to pass, didn't it? The whole of the rest of their lives, they were men who were reserved for the Lord Jesus. And clearly, what he prays for them, he really is also praying for us. But now he moves on from praying for his disciples then, very specifically, to pray for his disciples, as we could say now. Verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. 
And he's hinting to us what I've just been praying. I'm praying for these 11, but it's not just for these 11. But now he extends that prayer. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you're in me and I am in you. He begins to pray for us. What does Jesus most want for us? That's the burden of this prayer. And this is a, this is a life-concluding prayer. You know, you hope, if you are not comatose, at the end of your life and you're surrounded by your family, you hope that by God's grace you will be able to say words that will be a benediction to them, that will be unforgettable for them. And uh, Jesus is the same. So, what does He most want for us? Well, two things. He wants our unity. Verses 20 to 23. I pray for them that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I in you. He's saying just, just as in our fellowship with one another in the bond of the Holy Spirit. Father, I am one with you and, and you are one with me. He's not suggesting that they are confused with each other, but that they are absolutely one with each other in the fellowship they enjoy in the Spirit. And one of the things he's been teaching them is he's going to send the Holy Spirit to them so that their lives will become a home for the Father and the Son. Remember that in chapter 14. When the Spirit comes, He will come to make your life a dwelling place for the Father and the Son. And what Jesus is praying is that there will be in our fellowship with one another something that is reminiscent of and caused by the fellowship that the Father has with the Son. Now, why does He pray that? It's interesting why He prays that. His reason for praying that in this context is entirely evangelistic. Isn't that interesting? I'm praying that they all may be one, Father, in order that, do you notice this in verse 22? the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, if you were to ask the question, why is Scotland in the spiritual condition it is in today? One part of the answer, probably not the major part of the answer, but one part of the answer would be the number of people in our country who have been put off the gospel by the church. They have been put off the gospel by the church, either by the idiocy or the pride of people in the church or by the deadness of the church. But when people come into a fellowship of living believers where in some measure there is a reflection of the loving unity and fellowship of the heavenly Father with His heavenly Son, and people see this 
acceptance and hospitality of heart and affection and love and joy and simplicity of relationship and happiness of children and age groups mixing together, they don't see that anywhere else in the entire world. And they are bound to ask the question. They, they do not have the vocabulary to ask it properly, but they are bound to ask the question, why is it so different there? In my life in Christian ministry, interestingly, the place where I have most seen that is funeral services of real believers. When people who are not characteristically at church might say something like this at the end, I enjoyed that. I shouldn't say that, should I? What if they touched and tasted? They came expecting despair, and they have found hope and sweetness and the presence of Jesus Christ as He promised. Or they say, I didn't know I was coming to a worship service. There's so many different ordinary ways in which, in which this is true, and it's true if it's true, because Jesus prayed that His people… He's, he's, not, he's not speaking about some multi-denominational unity here. He's speaking about the actual people who are rubbing shoulders with us whom we love and honor and have affection for as fellow believers, the wise and the simple, the rich and the poor, multi-ethnic, multi-ability. I love you because you belong to my Savior. You are my brother. You are my sister. And uh, if they ask the question, where on earth does this come from? The answer is it doesn't actually come from earth. It comes from heaven. This actually was what impressed people in Jerusalem at the beginning of the new life of the Christian church. Remember when Luke describes it at the end of Acts chapter 2, and he says all these things about what was happening, and he speaks about the fact that they, were, they had everything in common. They said to one another, look, if it's, if it's mine, it's yours. If you need it, you can have it. They loved being with one another. And what does Luke then say? The Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. So, Jesus prays for our unity, and then He prays beyond that unity that we will see Him in His glory. Look at what He says in prayer in verse 24. He says, Father, I want those You have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory You have given me because You loved me before the creation of the world. Now, I should have checked this out, but I wonder, is this the only place where Jesus said to His Father, I want? 
You come from my generation and you're a child and you say, I want, and your father says, I want, doesn't get. This is what I want. Now, notice how different this prayer is from the prayer that he makes an hour and a half later in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, Father, he says, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And it's in the light of the fact that he has yielded himself to his Father's will that he's actually able to say, Father, this is what I want because I know this is what you want for me. And now, interestingly, at the beginning of the prayer, he had prayed for his own glory, but now he prays, Father, I want those you have given me in your love for me to be with me where I am. He means when he's exalted again at the right hand of the Father, I want you to be with me where I am that they may see my glory. If you're old enough to remember it, uh, you probably never forgot uh, the end of the Wimbledon men's singles championship in, was it 1970-something or 1980-something? I think it was Pat Cash, the Australian, um, who, instead of doing all the things you're supposed to do according to Wimbledon etiquette, jumped all his way up through the stands to the little group of people, his coach and his family and his supporters, and he went round hugging them all. It was, just, oh, it was an awful kind of breach of etiquette. Now everybody does it, of course. It was a great Wimbledon etiquette breakthrough. Why did he do that? What made these people so special? Because they had seen the hard grind and the sweat and the disappointment and the discouragement and the apparent defeat that lay behind this victory. And there's something like that, only greater here. Because these disciples, and we as disciples, we are those who have seen Jesus in his state of humiliation. They did quite literally. They saw Jesus in his state of humiliation. But in this world, we see Jesus in his state of humiliation. His name characteristically used as a curse word. His name banned from the public arena his name spat upon, his grace demeaned, his people marginalized. And because we have been with him in his state of humiliation in this world and witnessed to him as its Savior, he wants us to be with him, to see him in his glory and to reflect that glory in our lives. I think the earliest Christian dream I ever had was when I was a young teenager, new Christian. And with this weird dream, I am a weird dreamer, but this was a particularly sanctified weird dream. I, I dreamt I had died and I'd gone to heaven. And for some reason, most of the people I knew who were Christians had got there before me. And as I arrived, they were very excited, not because I had arrived, but because it was such an exciting place to be. As I arrived, they all crowded around me, all excited, all talking at once. And I remember there must have been a deep down 
Christian instinct in me. I remember in the dream pushing them back and saying, please get out of my way and let me get to Jesus. I want to see Jesus. And here is the very thing for which Jesus is praying. This is what He wants most of all for those for whom He prays, that He prays His Father will keep. I want you to see me, you who have seen me in my days of humiliation. I want you to see me in my glory. And it's in John 17 because John at least never forgot it. Went away into the darkness of the Jerusalem night and then into his future ministry. And of course, in those days in Patmos, when one Sunday morning he saw Christ in his glory in a vision, it was the thing that transformed his life. The Lord Jesus loves me. The Lord Jesus keeps me. The Lord Jesus wants me to see his glory. And if you're a Christian, uh, whoever you are, from wherever you are, that's his prayer for you. And the one thing that surely we know is this, that his prayers are always answered. That is the source of our joy. I hope it's a joy you share. Or if at this time of year you're an outsider to it, lots of songs about joy, but no joy within, then this is the way in. There is only one door, and it is this Lord Jesus Christ who has prayed that we will see his glory. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that it may be so and that your word will dwell in our hearts and fill us with joy. We ask it in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.